This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Many of the world's largest economies have commitments to reduce their carbon emissions to net zero by 2050. The International Energy Agency recently laid out a roadmap to make it to that goal, which includes no more investing in new fossil fuel projects. The pathway to reach the net zero 2050 is a very, very narrow pathway, but still achievable if we move quickly and if we have an international collaboration among the governments around the world. But economist Mark Carney says human nature's tendency toward procrastination gets in our own way. Once the physical manifestations of climate change are so enormous and immediate, it's too late. So we need to act now, and the, and the challenge is to pull the future to the present and motivate people in the present. Is there still time to get the world on a path to net zero emissions by 2050? Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Five years ago, most of the world's nations entered into an agreement to dramatically reduce their emissions with the goal of keeping planetary warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius by mid-century. But burning fossil fuels at our current rates will push carbon pollution far higher than the Paris Agreement goals. Mark Carney is an economist and banker currently serving as the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. He's also author of the new book, Values, Building a Better World for All. He tackles the question of how we can get to net zero. In 2019, he sat in the UN General Assembly and heard these words. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? That's Greta Thunberg at the UN. I've heard those words many times. They give me chills and tears every time I hear them. You write that these words cut through the assembled presidents, prime ministers, business leaders, and other dignitaries. How did they cut through you? Uh, just as you described it, actually, Greg, um, it, absolutely powerful to the core. Um, the inadequacy of the response made thus far at, at that point, and I, I would include still now, uh, two years on, you go to a meeting like that, you're you're assembled, if you're someone like me, because you're trying to do something about it. Um, uh, so you, to some extent, go into a meeting like that feeling pretty good about yourself. And then, as I said a moment ago, the inadequacy is uh, is exposed, and uh, you know that's part of her power uh, has been to reinforce the relentless logic of climate physics and the carbon budget and and, and the you know the, the size of the carbon budget, and uh, you know many many contributions that Greta Thunberg has made, but one of them is it has been to just force that math in front of uh, a number of decision makers, and. Particularly powerful for me is the fairy tales of eternal economic growth and the systems the world we live in is built on perpetual compounded quarterly growth. And we're approaching, you know, 50 years from when the Club of Rome said this doesn't pencil out. Yes. Um, well, this is where uh, I have a, a, a departure from her because the question and this is part of what I try to get across in the book, the point of what is growth, what is value, and uh, the extent to which a value of sustainability, to the extent to which we as a society value sustainability, value uh, solutions that move um, our, our country, our, our planet towards uh, net zero and to net zero, uh, then that will have value and then that will um, compound as part of that growth. Now, it'll be a very different type of growth than the, t the trajectory we've been on. But the nature of growth and the nature of what we value has changed over centuries. And uh, it's relatively rare, just to be clear, it's relatively rare that you get, uh, you move out from a trade-off of short and longer term or, or, or people and planet 
um, or profit and planet rather. Um, but uh, I think there is a prospect uh, of that happening. And the other th thing I feel very strongly about is that the scale of the investment, the scale of change that's required is that we won't get there without harnessing uh, the power of the innovation, the dynamism of the market. Uh, but it has to be oriented to that end. It has to be oriented to the same end that uh, Greta Thunberg underscores, which is we have you know net zero and net zero consistent with a realistic carbon budget. In other words, um, uh, an understanding of just how limited uh, it is. It's that element of the equation that uh, you know far too many for too long have uh, have set aside. And many governments and companies are making those net zero pledges. As the former governor of the UK Central Bank, you're playing a key role in the upcoming climate summit in Glasgow later this year. Climate leaders Mary Robinson and Christiana Figueres have questioned the UK's leadership of the conference of the parties or COP26 and expressed concern that it isn't raising ambition for governments and companies. Are they right to be worried? Well, I think uh, everyone is right to... Uh have the highest ambitions and to challenge uh, the efforts that people are making myself, you know, challenge my efforts as well. Uh, the ambition of COP26, this meeting in Glasgow in November, is to uh, keep one and a half degrees within reach. Paris set the sub two degree goal, the one and a half stretch goal that the NDCs, the country plans at Paris at that moment were were equivalent to 2.6 degrees, so they weren't equivalent to the objective even at the time. And then most countries didn't execute against those plans. And so the world, when the UK took up the presidency, was headed well above three degrees and different estimates, but certainly well above three degrees. So to pull ambition back into uh, towards that one and a half degrees uh, is absolutely necessary. And uh, it, it, is a, uh, it is a high ambition. There, there's no mission accomplished banner, though, that will, you know, even if that is accomplished, uh, banner that should be uh, should be flown in Glasgow because uh, plans are not execution uh, and uh, one and a half degrees within reach is not one and a half degrees achieved. Right. And to, just to reflect on that so that the world is currently on path to double the Paris stated goal. So we're nowhere near achieving the, the, the promise of Paris and much of the conversation at those the conferences, the UN international process is based on the, how we value or discount the future. You write that climate change is a tragedy of the horizon. What do you mean by that? And what do we do about the tragedy of the horizon? Well, the I spoke in those terms because we often think of it as first and foremost a tragedy of the commons, um, which is this problem of not having the externality priced of climate change, free rider problem in effect. But it also goes to the na human nature, which is that we put off till tomorrow uh, what we should be doing today, uh, and we're irrationally impatient. And for climate change, as you well know, once it becomes the clear and present danger, once the physical manifestations of climate change are so enormous and immediate, it's too late. Uh, the stock of carbon, the stock of greenhouse gases is such in the atmosphere uh, that uh, absent some technological fairy tale, to use that term, uh, we won't be able <laughs> to reverse it. So we need to act now. And the, and the challenge is to, uh, is to pull the future to the present and motivate people in the present to the, make the types of uh, investments and changes that are necessary. And part of what we're doing on the financial side is, 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 is to accomplish that. But we can only really accomplish that if in parallel social pressure, uh, consumer pressure, and government policy is consistent with addressing the tragedy of the horizon. And that's the, that's, that's the core work. Right. And so uh, when you mention that, I, I think of uh, lots of examples to kind of bring that down. You know, I think of Miami. It's built on porous sandstone. So building the seawall around the city won't work. They have sunny day flooding. Um, many You used to work at Goldman Sachs. Many people on Wall Street are relocating to Miami. The city needs to spend $4 billion in coming decades to retreat from some places and armor the rest. The property market is booming. Condos are going up. Banks are issuing 30-year mortgages. Is that an example of a horizon where everyone's just banking on, well, I can get out before it collapses? It's all about time horizons. That's right. Uh, that is an example. And I'll give a counterexample to expand on what I was saying a moment ago, which is 
in the UK, uh, in Canada, uh, one of the th- financial reforms related to climate is to conduct so-called climate stress tests. And that's to ask banks um, to look at where they're lending and think about how those, whether it's a company or in this case, real estate, how that's going to look 10, 20, 30 years out from now. And look at those assets in two ways. One is what happens if we it's business as usual and we head well through that three degrees and and as a consequence, uh, we have more and more extreme weather events. The sea levels rise by another 10 inches. And uh, the consequence, exactly what you're saying, the $4 billion isn't enough. And what does that do to the real estate that you've lent 30-year money against? Are you comfortable with those risks? Have you really thought it through? And in order to properly ask that question, as opposed to just conceptually put the challenge, we've banded together a group of central banks and climate experts, climate scientists, uh, macroeconomic modelers, and and created scenarios, uh, coherent scenarios, which are take the catastrophe risk modeling of climate. And I, I can tell you as somebody who used to oversee Lloyd's of London, which one of its jobs <laughs> was to insure against these types of risks. So it's pretty sophisticated uh, modeling to take that modeling and to take the economic impact and the asset level impact, the Miami real estate impact in your example, and challenge the banks and say, well, did you know that this is the risk you're running if you keep the mortgage to the end? And what is your strategy? Is your strategy what you just said, Greg, which is, well, you know, we'll, we'll get out before others realize this and the asset will be sold on and that's possible. Another strategy or, or view could be, well, actually, we don't think it's going to happen because we think that uh, you know through the power of Greta Thunberg and governments and others, we won't end up in that three plus degree world. But what we need to have is our financial institutions fully or as fully informed and have the perspective that they need in order to be clear what risks they're running. There are also risks, and this may sound a bit paradoxical, but there are risks with success. Transition uh, risks, other, yeah. Yeah, trans, exactly, transition risks. So what if I'm lending, an obvious example is I'm lending to a big oil company that isn't investing in the energies of the future, uh, but it has oil reserves that last 30 years and gas reserves that last 50 years, et cetera. And I'm assuming that the value of those assets will be realized, but because we're successful in addressing climate change, much less oil and gas is used and these assets are stranded and there's losses there and therefore I have losses either because I've invested directly in them or I've lent against those assets. And the order of magnitude of those so-called stranded assets uh, is enormous, um, 50% plus uh, for uh, gas and, um, and coal reserves of the known reserves that exist cannot be burned and we still meet the Paris objectives. That's what stranded assets mean. And so there's also that challenge put to uh, the financial institutions now. And you write that it's not just oil and gas companies and banks. You write that the European auto industry has about $280 billion in assets of risk at risk of being stranded because of three disruptions, the electrification of cars, autonomous vehicles, and ride sharing. So for people, listeners who have a 401k program that's invested in the S&P 500 or some European index, are the stock markets discounting the value of European auto stocks because some of those their factories may become outdated because they're, they're building fossil fuel engines when the world's going electric? Well, that adjustment has started to happen. Uh, we see it in the extremes of valuations for um, Tesla and electric mm-hmm. uh, vehicle manufacturers and uh, major automakers. And of course, a number of people step back and they say, well, how is that possible? You know, the, the number of cars that are produced by Toyota, Volkswagen, BMW, Ford, et cetera, all together, just dwarf the amount by Tesla. And the answer is yes, but one has a clear future and the others have let's let's be polite you know has a murky future now what's interesting is what has changed in europe in the last uh, 12 months in germany for example and this is most relevant uh, they have announced that there are no new internal combustion engine sales of vehicles after 2030 and here's an example of how you address the tragedy of the horizon you you have a clear government policy like that it tells the german auto industry where the future is where it isn't it's far enough off in the distance that there's time to repurpose some of those factories to invest in electric vehicles and to adjust, build out charging infrastructure. And so that's happening. But there are assets that 
are, are no longer worth much because they were geared to uh, emissions heavy uh, old modes of transport. But these are the types of uh, these are the types of policies that can then be amplified by a financial sector that has the right information um, and is thinking far enough ahead to where the future is going to be. And that's part of what's coming together. I don't want to oversell it. I don't want to say it's all lined up, but it's part of what's coming together as we speak. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about getting to net zero emissions with economist and author Mark Carney. Coming up, the role of insurance companies in assessing and mitigating climate risk. For the insurance covered in London, uh, the extreme weather events have gone up three times in the course of the last 25 years, and the costs have gone up eight times. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Three insurgent directors were recently elected to the board of ExxonMobil. They want to change the company's direction to protect shareholders from losing money in the shift away from fossil fuels. I asked Mark Carney about the impact of that surprise election. Uh, one of the things I thought is uh, there's a return to shareholder value. If you Google um, engine number one Exxon mm-hmm. presentation, mm-hmm. so this is the activist investor uh, who uh, started this process to get those directors uh, elected. Uh, there's an 80-plus page uh, presentation which goes through basically the outlook for value creation, which goes back to our earlier conversation about growth and value and the core thesis of it, backed up with uh, some you know series of analysis and numbers, is that the company Exxon had not been investing enough in the fuels of the future, uh, or the energies of the future, and that plus the prospect of stranding of assets meant that it was destroying value and that it needed this strategic change. And of course, that's part of the job. I mean, as a, as a board member, uh, members of boards, your job is overseeing strategy and selecting the right people uh, uh, to run it. Uh, that's, that's fundamental to your job. And so the judgment, obviously, of the majority of the shareholders uh, decided that this is, uh, this is right and, and, and voted their shares accordingly. It's an interesting alignment. I mean, it's very important situation, but it's a, it's an alignment of value in the future, value more, more consistent. I don't want to oversell it more consistent with sustainability, uh, as opposed to value in the past, which was the existing strategy the company was pursuing. Right. So it's about money rather than future. I'd like to play a clip from CNBC's Jim Cramer and get your reaction on the other side. I'm done with fossil fuels. I mean, big, big pension funds saying, listen, we're not going to own anymore. Uh, it you think that's the biggest thing are. holding these these guys back, and not necessarily yes. just oil production yes. part here in the United States? Absolutely. Look at BP; it's a solid yield, uh-huh. uh, very good. Look at Chevron buying back five billion dollars worth of stock. Nobody cares, and this has to do with new kinds of money managers who, frankly, just want to. Uh, uh, appease younger people who believe that you can't ever make a fossil fuel company sustainable. We're in the death knell phase. That's quite a statement from a leading figure on Wall Street, CNBC, to say, you know, he, and he sounds bitter about this change, and he points to millennial money managers and investors in the death knell phase. Your reaction? Uh, well, it's interesting. I hadn't heard it. Uh... He often sounds. He often sounds bitter, though. That's I wouldn't. I wouldn't overstate. <laughs> right. uh, but um, no, it is quite. It's it's uh, it's quite instructive. I, I, w- I would parse out a couple of things. One is that uh, I, I wouldn't put this down to uh, to use the term woke capitalism. Uh, I put it down to uh, you know an assessment of where the world is going or where the world needs to go and a more extreme section of, of, of the economy or a section of the economy that isn't moving fast enough. Now, one of the challenges I think we have is that within the energy sector, there are companies that are transitioning. There are companies that are trying to take now, finally, a significant mm-hmm. proportion of their cash flows and do what engine number one wanted 
wants Exxon to do and these new directors will want Exxon to do to reinvest in uh, renewable energy and, and transition from the fuels of today to those of tomorrow. So now identifying those true examples as opposed to uh, niche, you know, kind of trophy uh, uh, investments that that are intended to uh uh, appease uh, this issue. Greenwashing. There's re- greenwashing yeah, going on. To, yeah. As opposed to, yeah, as opposed to truly transform. Uh, that's what uh, that's what uh, investors have to make a, a judgment about. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't have the blanket. I'm done with the entire sector any more than I would in the steel sector, which of course is hugely polluting and emitting. But it will be a period of time will run. There are certain companies that are investing huge amounts in greening steel. Uh, and we need a system. We need objective judgments about who's actually doing it, but we need a system that gets capital to those companies so that they can actually make those investments and takes capital away or changes the pricing, at least, of the companies that uh, aren't doing anything or aren't moving fast enough. So you're saying that there's some companies are greenwashing, some companies are are legitimate and transforming, and the and the markets need to to sort that out. I want to come back to to banks, you know, the uh, and they're lending. Because um, you're obviously been central banker of two countries. Uh, you know, the International Energy Agency recently stated that investment in new fossil fuel infrastructure is inconsistent with the Paris climate goals. You know, IEA Chief Fatih Birol is on this episode. You know, of Climate One. My question to you as Canada's former central banker is why are Canadian banks lending to Line 3 and development of the Canadian tar sands? Is that consistent with Canada's pledge to be net zero by 2050? And is it consistent with the economics we've been talking about? New development of uh, fossil fuels as opposed to, um, it was my interpretation of that, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to... Um, what's already in the know, pipeline? So yeah, what's in the pipeline, what's maintaining... Uh, if if I can make the the basic point, which is being asked of an investor or a bank, uh, which is that how does this energy asset fit into the energy transition that needs to happen if we're going to achieve our climate goals, and and what is happening, you know, when when the UK took over the presidency, um, we had thirty percent of global emissions were in some country that had some form of net zero commitment. Today it's seventy percent. And climbing uh, of global emissions are you know, in countries that have a form of a net zero commitment. The consequence of that is it's cascading down to the level of the company and the financial institution. And the questions is, do you have a net zero objective? What's your plan to achieve it? And then the judgment increasingly will become, well, which of these is credible, is real, including is it real in terms of the company has the management capability to actually execute against the plan? It might be the best intentions, but they're not able to pull it off. What I'm saying is true of any asset, but it's certainly absolutely true of energy assets, which is, well, how does this fit in with this transition? What market share are you implying you're going to have 10 years, 20 years out if you're maintaining production, for example, in fossil fuels or even increasing production? Uh, And is that credible? Or are you effectively saying we're not going to do we collectively are not going to accomplish what uh, what what we've uh, signed up for. Insurance companies are another big part of the financial market. Uh, they were some of the earliest corporations to sound the alarm on climate risk. They know the numbers and see some see them as constructive actors. Others say insurance companies will exploit climate to raise prices and fatten profit margins. I talked with one insurance CEO who shrugged and said, you know, we reprice our policies every year. You know, if the risk goes up, we can raise yeah. our prices, right? Yeah. So how do you see insurance and reinsurance companies' role in driving decarbonization of the global economy? Well, there's uh, uh, there's a few things. And let me reinforce that, the point you just made, which is that's exactly what happens uh, as their former regulator, what what happens. These are the most sophisticated managers of climate risk. If you want a discussion about uh, how bad, how much things have deteriorated in terms of physical climate uh, implications and wh- how where it could go, talk to a property and casualty insurer or a reinsurance uh, company because that's what they do all the time. And what they do is they change the pricing because it's riskier, or they stop covering certain areas. And you know, some of that Florida mm-hmm. real estate is going. You know, you're not going to get insurance on yeah. it down the road if we're on this trajectory. Uh, and uh, 
So that's the first thing. Second is that insurance companies um, on the asset side of their balance sheet, so you know they, they write these risks, they take these risks, but they invest over on the other side. So they have money to pay off and make a profit, hopefully for them and their shareholders. On the asset side, they've been some of the, mo- the earliest movers on divesting of assets or managing down their climate exposure. And they're some of the most sophisticated uh, in terms of assessing uh, the contribution of their portfolio, uh, some of the big European insurers uh, actually publish the warming contribution of their portfolio to the planet. Uh, so it tends to be, I mean, for some of the big ones right now, it's about three degrees. Let's say the world's warming at three and a quarter, they're at three degrees, but then they're explicitly looking to manage that down. So to sell assets that are bigger contributors because they're not moving fast enough and buy uh, companies that, uh, that, that are reducing. So uh, what we're also seeing, and one of the things we want to have in place for this big meeting in Glasgow on the insurance side, is underwriting. Um, so giving insurance consistent with uh, companies that, that are transitioning to net zero. So it's a question of you know, how you get in insurance cover if you're uh, operating in a sector, but you're ignoring um, the transition. So insurance is, I view it as, I view it as a, a leading indicator of what, well, a, a faithful reporter of what's happening on the ground, what they won't insure, a leading indicator of how bad things could get, because that's their job to, to think about that. Uh, and then the question is, are they a responsible steward of their, of, of their funds, both on the, where they invest and, 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 and what they're willing to underwrite. Just, just to give you the straight number I mentioned in the book, for the insurance covered in London, uh, the extreme weather events have gone up three times in the course of the last 25 years, and the costs have gone up eight times. So the insured costs, and that's adjusted for inflation, a good central banker adjusts for inflation. So that gives you a sense. And then, of course, that which is uninsured, well, I shouldn't say of course, but just to point it out, has gone up an even greater amount because they're pulling back. Yeah, and that's leaving people either uninsured or putting that risk onto the balance sheets of states and governments and and taxpayers. Economists are stereotypically rational to the point of being emotionally closed off, although the, 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 the field has gone toward behavioral economics lately, where they're not, you know, the purely rational people. You know, I'm just curious, personally for you, we try to bridge the personal and systemic here. We're talking about all these numbers that are just so grave. You know, I wonder how you, you handle working with the magnitude of these risks um, and deal with, with these doomsday scenarios, how you, how you deal with it on a personal, emotional level. Well, it's, I, I you know, I'm f- trying to focus on what we can do about it and in a rational way and how to organize the system so that the incentives are there to address it. Uh, and to be clear, I'm very conscious that there, there's no financial sector answer to this alone. I mean, we need government policy. We need, uh, you know, people making choices. And of course, we need you know, in the end, we're going to need more innovation. We've had tremendous innovation in, in low carbon technologies, and uh, we can go a long way with those, but we can't get all the way to the end uh, without further innovation. So uh, first is I deal with it by uh, trying to be part of the solution and, and, and knowing something, you know, accumulated over the years about how markets work and, and how they can uh, be a force for good is setting that up. Uh, I, I would I'd say this, Greg, that there has been a lot of progress in recent years on this. It is mainstreaming very rapidly, so that makes me more optimistic. But then, when I sit down and look at the scale of the, you know, the other side of the numbers, the scale, of the challenge, the size of the carbon bu- budget, I find it, uh, I find it very difficult. And the thing that keeps coming back to me virtually every day is, you know, you run out of time. Uh, we'll have this great conversation, but we will run out of time, and it's. And it just always comes back to me. It's like everything with climate change, there's not enough time. Mm-hmm. So bottom line here, as we get as we wrap up, you know, climate is the biggest market failure of all time because we get to individuals and companies use the the sky as an unpriced sewer. And you're involved with lots of groups that are trying to change the rules of the game while it's being played, you know, capitalism to reform from within. You know, can markets self-correct uh, to address this big failure of climate change? I think they can. I, 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 I do think they can. I mean, just to be clear that um, there's a very large proportion of people in markets um, who view this as uh, first and foremost a 
a major commercial opportunity, a chance to make a very large amount of money uh, because societies, you know, has decided to address this issue. And that's going to show up in what people, you know, what kind of car they drive, what they eat, you know, where they go on vacation. But it's also going to show up in government rules and regulations and laws and carbon prices and other things. Now, if that second element isn't followed through uh, by the political process, and we all know how difficult the political process is, uh, people won't make as much money. We won't make as much progress. Uh, so, you know, finance certainly won't do it on its own. Uh, but we have uh, the collective, we have the attention of the financial industry now uh, that this is a major strategic issue. And I'll, I'll, I'll add one other thing just to give a sense is I hear this all the time, uh, that a view that getting to sustainability is like the internet. In other words, it's something that affects absolutely everything, which is true. Uh, and therefore, you have to be knowledgeable and you you know you can make a lot of money or you can lose a lot of money if you're not thinking about it in those terms. And of course, like the internet, uh, if we remember, when I say the internet, I mean, you know, going back to the mid nineties, the information superhighway as they used to be called. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, something that has seeped into all of our lives and we don't, you know, to the extent we don't even know, but there, there are these waves of, of, you know, euphoria and then a bit of despair and then, you know, kind of bounces back up and, and that's what we're going to need in order to get there. Mark Carney is an economist and banker currently serving as the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. He's also author of the new book, Values, Building a Better World for All. Mark Carney, thanks for sharing your insights on Climate One, and I hope that uh, Glasgow is a big success that uh, raises ambition because we certainly, uh, there's a lot riding on it and we, and we need it. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a true pleasure to be on. You're listening to a conversation about the challenges of getting the world to net zero emissions by 2050. Coming up, the head of the International Energy Agency on what steps will be needed to get us there. One ton of CO2 going to atmosphere from Jakarta or from Los Angeles or from Paris, it has the same effect on everybody. The emissions don't have a passport. So therefore, we have to find a global solution here. That's up next when Climate One continues. The International Energy Agency recently made headlines by creating a roadmap to get the world to net zero emissions by 2050. The report determined that we don't need to invest in new fossil fuel supply projects to meet projected demand. Fatih Birol, executive director of the International Energy Agency, unpacked this latest report and its findings. What is happening today is that the more and more countries around the world United States, Canada, all European countries, Japan, Korea, New Zealand, and China, they made commitments to bring their emissions to net zero by 2050. Why? Because the scientists tell us it is the only way that we can keep our planet more or less as it is now. Now, when we look at the, uh, the realities of the life, energy sector, is responsible more than 80% of the emissions, the global emissions. So if the world, all these countries, their economies need to go to from uh, high levels to zero by 2050, huge changes need to happen in the energy sector. So what we have done, we have translated those government targets targets by imposed by the scientists to energy sector. What needs to happen in the energy sector so that the emissions decline and go to net zero by uh, 2050? We have a uh, look at the entire energy sector, all power plants, all the cars, trucks, industrial facilities, one by one. And uh, we came up over 400 measures that the uh, governments uh, need to put in place in order to reduce those uh, emissions. Let me give you one example. In 2030, 60% of all car sales should be electric cars. Today, it is less than 5%. To be in line with those targets, it should go to 60%. If we make these steps, more electric cars, alternative fuels to oil in the aviation, we will not need oil as much and the oil demand will decline so that we reach the uh, our targets. And if this happens, we don't need 
to invest new oil exploration. We don't need to discover new oil fields. With the ones we have today is enough to meet the declining oil demand. So I see that the pathway to reach the net zero 2050 is a very, very narrow pathway, but still achievable if we move quickly and if we have an international collaboration among the governments around the world. Right, and there's different pathways. The low collaboration pathway takes us out to like 2090 before we get to net zero. The high international collaboration pathway gets us to, I think, 2050. The auto industry already seems to be sort of pointed in that direction. Maybe there's questions about the speed and durability of that commitment, but that raises questions for the destruction of oil demand. I recently interviewed Frank Macriola, senior vice president with the American Petroleum Institute, and he said your agency got it wrong on new supply. He said that growing global population and growing global demand for energy and emerging economies mean that new fossil fuel supplies are necessary. You know, how has the oil industry responded to this report? So first of all, I should say the colleague you uh, interviewed in your program is uh, half right, half wrong. The growing population, growing economy uh, will, he says, needs more uh, fossil fuels. I wouldn't say fossil fuels. They would need energy. Fossil fuels is not equal to energy. Energy is, uh, uh, for example, uh, in Africa today, I am seeing Africa will make a big move in the direction of solar energy. Solar energy is becoming so cheap that last year, more than 90% of all power plants built in the world were solar. 90% solar. But, excuse me, but isn't there also been an uptick recently that solar prices, that narrative of declining solar prices? Yes, solar prices went up recently, but I think this is a temporary uh, uptick because of the some the, the technical issues. It, it will continue to be on the low side, and we will see solar uh, will be the, the king of uh, uh, global power markets for many years to come, especially... I am keen about Africa because in Africa, we still have two out of three people in sub-Saharan Africa having no electricity, no access to electricity. And can you believe it? In Africa, the, the continent which gets the brightest sun, most sun, and the amount of uh, power plants from solar in Africa is only one third of in the United Kingdom. So this is uh, heartbreaking uh, data for me, but uh, I believe uh, Africa uh, will make a big push in terms of solar energy and bring uh, tens of uh, millions of people uh, electricity through uh, solar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of course, some countries will still use uh, uh, natural gas, oil, and, and others, but if the electric cars become the first choice of uh, the uh, the customers, the population around the world, with the declining costs, then uh, there will be a big shift from our uh, from the current uh, car models. Now, how the oil industry uh, reacted? Uh, mixed uh, reactions. Uh, some European and some North American now are taking our report as a basis to develop the investment strategies. But some others, for example, one uh, Middle East uh, oil minister thought we are too optimistic. This is a, a beautiful dream. It's like a, he he called the nickname is uh, La La Land, uh, uh, one of the uh, ministers. <laughs> La La Land. Another, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, another another uh, minister from a big uh, Eastern European uh, oil and gas producer said. It is far too optimistic that such a technological change happens. I respect all of these uh, views, but what I don't uh, respect is that the, we cannot discuss, the, dispute the need for action to address climate change. This is, uh, in my view, out of question. So the net zero scenario envisions a 90% reduction in coal by 2050. Today, coal is declining around the world, but it is growing in China. So some people would say that a lot of good things can happen, but coal in China could 
outweigh other positive changes. So what do you see regarding any indication that China will change its path on coal? You're completely right. And what China will do, what China will decide in general on climate change on energy, will decide whether or not the world can reach its climate goals, full stop. Uh, and especially in terms of coal, uh, today, half of the coal in the world is consumed in China, other half everybody put together. So this is just to put it the uh, point stronger. Now, I see that even in China, there is a weakening of uh, the commitment in coal. This is number one. Number two, the declining cost of solar energy, together with wind, uh, onshore wind and offshore wind, will make even existing coal plants, running existing coal plants, uh, not uh, profitable. Number three, in China, but also in India, there is a, another driver which will lead to reduce coal uh, use, which is air pollution. And uh, you will see uh, that the uh, Chinese, the citizens in the big cities, are not very happy uh, for uh, the air pollution the uh, coming from the coal uh, plants. And uh, there may be hiccups here and there, some zigzags, but I would expect that China will also move uh, in a direction uh, that we will see a terminal decline of coal. How much of an impact has COVID had on fuel switching and the carbon curves? You said that oil took the biggest hit. You know, have we hit peak oil demand, as many have suggested, because of structural decline in oil demand caused by COVID? Last year, uh, one year ago, I said, and uh, we wrote it down and everywhere, I said the oil will not peak unless governments take uh, uh, right policies and make the, provide the incentives for the alternatives. People are thinking uh, that we will not, uh, we will not uh, drive as much as before because there is the teleworking and people have now better understanding of the environmental challenges. They are much more environmentally aligned. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I, uh, there should be strong either regulatory or fiscal incentives for uh, the drivers, uh, for the people to move them uh, in the right direction. And I said, if the governments do not take the necessary measures, we will go back there where we were before the peak and our numbers show that the, uh, as of next year, if no changes happen, we will be there where we were before the COVID. There's also a, a, an ongoing debate about technology and innovation. One camp says technology exists, that it needs to be deployed, which will drive down costs. The other camp says, no, existing technology is not enough. We need big new innovations to decarbonize the global economy. Where are you on that? Since I am uh, in... Uh, in Paris, in France, I would say a French answer, yes and no, <laughs> in between. So why yes, why, why no? Uh, yes, because there are some technologies uh, such as the uh, solar, wind, efficiency, electric cars, uh, which are definitely, we can have a massive expansion of those because they are already in the market, and which is a very good news. But they alone, will not bring us to our climate cause. They will be very important uh, 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 major drivers, but we need huge decarbonization of iron steel, for instance, in industry, huge uh, drivers, cement, or the trucks. We talk about electric cars, but truck, the cars, but trucks are very important, or the, the buses, or aviation. You cannot run uh, the, uh, the jets by uh, solar energy, at least for now. So we need new technologies in addition to what we have now, different technologies, other technologies to complement the existing ones and without them being part of the solution, especially those sectors which we call hard to abate sectors, uh, it will be difficult to uh, decarbonize them. So we need uh, both of them.
So this the pathway, your scenario for net zero by 2050, which matches some of these countries' commitments, I think China's out at 2060, uh, is now less than 30 years away. When I look back 30 years, 1991 doesn't seem that long ago to me, but I don't think humans are very good about looking that far into the future. So how do you convince people that 2050 is actually really soon, especially when it comes to energy? And our facts and charts and figures the best way to really reach people and drive home that urgency. I completely agree with you. It is the reason why we have, what we have done is uh, between now and 2050, we have milestones every year, what we have to achieve, what we have to do. And uh, as of this year, uh, we are going to look uh, what countries promised against uh, what, how they perform. So are they on track or off track? And we are a normally an energy organization. Our normal country partners are uh, energy ministries, uh, energy companies, but I am since uh, one month, I am talking with all the big uh, investors, financial institutions, because uh, of the very reason that the, our report, in my view, gave a unmistakable signal to the investors. You have the risk of uh, putting your money in the old technologies, which in turn means that you will make big losses. And there may well be an opportunity in new clean technologies where there may have lucrative profits for you. We gave this unmistakable message with the numbers, facts, and figures, and it is the reason uh, we are seeing uh, huge interest from uh, the institutional investors, uh, the pension funds, uh, private private institutions, uh, uh, etc. So uh, the investments that will be made in the next few years will show which direction the world will go, including the ones in the United States. Yeah, we're seeing that. So that, that increasing investor interest, increasing investor importance, pressuring ExxonMobil, shareholder resolutions, uh, all those sorts of things. You know, COP26 is coming up in Glasgow in November. That's the International Climate Summit. And we talk elsewhere in this episode with Mark Carney, who's playing a leading role advising British Prime Minister Boris Johnson on that, who's the chair of that conference. Yet most countries have not updated their pledges made when the Paris Climate Agreement was reached six years ago. The numbers are not encouraging. How concerned are you about the announced national plans? And is there any indication of rising ambition going into Glasgow? The, the issue is, uh, Greg, one ton of CO2 going to atmosphere from Jakarta or from uh, 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 Los Angeles, or from Paris, or uh, from Oslo, it has the same effect on everybody. There is no, the emissions don't have a passport. So therefore, <laughs> we have to find a global solution uh, here. Now, when it comes to COP26, I am uh, really uh, uh, hopeful. Hopeful for two reasons. One, there is a strong political momentum. The recent G7, the seven largest economies of the Western countries came up with a very strong statement. They have endorsed the report that we are, our report that we are talking uh, now. Uh, what do I expect? I expect uh, that uh, this positive momentum turns into A, providing a clear signal to the uh, worst population we are going to fix this problem altogether. And second, for the emerging world, there is a need to make, give some support in order to mobilize investment in clean energy technologies. Because in the next 30 years, more than 90% of the emissions growth will come from emerging world, and only a small proportion of the clean energy investments go there. So how we can unlock this, because we have enough money, capital in the world, but the money doesn't go to Indonesia, doesn't go to India. What kind of mechanisms we will create to make those investments uh, lucrative uh, for the investors? So this is the second uh, uh, expectation I hear from uh, COP26. And the, uh, uh, we are working very closely with the uh, UK government uh, to uh, make sure that we will come up uh, with some 
clear outcome from COP26. It's like Elvis Presley. It is now or never. So to sum up a little bit here, what you're saying is we have most, but not all of the technology. We have enough money, but it's not going to the right places. So if we direct the money and technology we have, a lot of this can be solved. So the opening line of an IEA report says, quote, the last 12 months have seen enormous upheavals in energy markets around the world, yet the challenges of transforming the global energy system remain urgent and daunting. You know where I'm quoting from? It's the first line of an IEA report, World Energy Outlook from 2009, oh, 12 perfect. years ago. Perfect. And it's almost the same language used today. So what makes you think that the next 12 years will be different or we'll just kind of be saying the same thing about upheaval and daunting challenges? So it, first of all, it shows that we are consistent with ourselves, which is not a bit news. <laughs> and the second <laughs> thing is that the, the world uh, energy system uh, is a bit like a huge uh, tanker in, in the sea. The direction changes very slowly. It is not like the IT sector, which is like a bicycle. It can, you can, it can man make a maneuver very, very quickly. So, uh, but now what I am seeing is the technological developments are uh, progressing so quickly, the uh, cost of and the uh, cost of clean energy technologies are dropping down so quickly that I expect uh, huge changes happening. And this marries uh, with the very fact that the all major economies around the world seem that they are determined to address climate change. Political momentum is there, determination is there, the technologies are getting uh, cheaper. And uh, I think, as I said before, the there is no lack of capital, and we have a, a, a roadmap of the world. I am uh, really hopeful uh, that the, the in the next uh, 10 or 12 years, uh, the situation will change significantly compared to today. Whether or not we will be able to reach this 1.5 degrees target, I don't know. We do our best, even if we don't reach 1.5 degrees, but if we reach 1.6 degrees, 1.7 degrees temperature increase, it is much better than the three degrees uh, temperature increase where we are now. Right. We've heard, I think we've had about one degree of warming so far. So three degrees, triple what we've had so exactly. far. That's a scary world. Uh, Fatih Birol is executive director of the International Energy Agency based in Paris, looks at the global energy system and created scenarios for getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Dr. Birol, thanks for coming on Climate One and sharing your insights. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the narrow path to net zero emissions with Fatih Birol and Mark Carney. To hear more Climate One empowering conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate is awkward and complicated. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.